0: About, uh, about a year and a half ago, I, I began listening to um, a, a specific podcast um, and, and this, uh, this particular one is a, a weekly podcast that uh, Megan's brother turned me on to um, and he actually had some connections with uh, the co-hosts of the podcast, Matt and John. And so it was through him that I found out about it, and and this, this weekly podcast is essentially a mixture of discussions about topics from two main categories. There's sports and theology, and if a podcast ever pegged me, that might be the one. So I started listening to it, I uh, found it intriguing and interesting, and if I'm being honest, they they discuss a little bit more football and basketball and not quite enough baseball for my own particular liking, but, but uh, uh, I still find it, uh, find it good. I enjoy listening to Matt and John as they, they seamlessly transition back and forth between, between sports and theology. And they mix in some of their own personal experiences from their lives as well. Um, things that they, they think people might find interesting. And so this, this uh, podcast is aptly titled the Various and Sundry Podcast. Various and Sundry. And, and Sundry is, a, that's not a real common term, but it's a term that, that means different or assorted. And so their topics each week can definitely be described as Various and Sundry. It's a good, good title for it. And and as I was uh, studying the section of Luke's gospel that we'll be in this morning, uh, my mind just kept going to the title of that podcast that I listened to. And and, uh, this morning we're going to look in Luke chapter 8 at four different uh, miracle stories. And I think a good way to describe the group of four miracles that we're going to see is with the adjectives various and sundry. Um, in these four stories, we're going to see four different people or four different groups of people experiencing Jesus' miraculous power. We'll, we'll see Jesus' power on display in four very different areas, and, and we'll also see the four people or, or groups of people showing, displaying four different levels of faith, if I can phrase it that way. So that's why I've entitled today's sermon, Various and Sundry Miracles. I just thought thought uh, uh, maybe that would be a, an apt title. So, so here's how we're gonna, going to go about it today. We're, we're going to go through each miracle one by one. I'll, I'll read through them one at a time, and then I'll pause after each one to make a few comments specific to that particular uh, story. And then after we've read all four, we'll, we'll take a step back and look at the big picture and see what the four stories together teach us about the person of Jesus and also the role of faith in connection with with the work of God in our lives. So so that's kind of the roadmap for this morning. I, I would encourage you to turn with me to Luke chapter eight. Um, uh, if you don't normally follow along by either in the Bible or on your phone, I would, I would encourage you to do it. I, I, there's just something about not just hearing it, but seeing with our eyes that I think can draw some things out for us. And so I would, I would just encourage you to, to do that. The, the first uh, story we're looking at this morning is the famous one where Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. So we are in Luke chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 22. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Now, as you've perhaps heard before, the, the Sea of Galilee is notorious for, for these types of storms that would just suddenly arise and, and contain uh, high winds, Um, The sea itself is in a basin uh, surrounded by hills. I've actually, I've, I've got this 3D map that's always been fascinating to me in my office. And I know, I realize it's small and this maybe is not doing anything for you right now. But the Sea of Galilee is up here. And because it's 3D, you can really see the mountains and the hills surrounding the Sea of Galilee. And so what happens is there's some passes leading into it and when when the weather is just right, the wind will flow through those passes down onto the, the lake, and the air above the lake is warmer and more humid, and so it will mix, and you'll get these storms that just seemingly come up out of nowhere. Um, and again, I don't, maybe that's not doing anything. I'll just leave it up here if you want to come look at it later. You're welcome to come take it. It's the, my favorite way to look at this is to just do it like this. I, really, really. I, I'm not kidding. Come try it. And, you know, look where Jerusalem is, the Sea of Galilee. It really gives you a feel for, for the lay of the land, so I would, I would encourage you to, uh, to give that a try. But, but that being said, there, there's, there's a definite natural reason that storms arise on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, But many reading this story over the years have also seen a spiritual reason for this particular storm. As Jesus stated in verse 22, they were traveling to the other side of the lake. So they would have been over here. This is the the Jewish side of the lake on the left. This side over here is Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. And so When it says going to the other side, they were traveling to the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. Meant that the side of the lake that they were on would have been the Jewish side where God was worshiped. They were going to the Gentile side where God was not typically worshiped. And some see this as leaving the realm of God and going to the realm of Satan. And so with that understanding, some would say that Satan was behind that storm because he did not want Jesus to come to the other side of the lake. The strong and dangerous winds were an attempt to keep him out of there. And, and you know, we may, we may be quick to stick with the natural understanding, but, but I think the door is open to to the, the spiritual understanding for why the storm arose there. But Regardless of the cause of the storm, it was a dangerous one, in which Luke tells us that those in the boat really were in danger. Not just that they felt like they were in danger, they really were. And these are experienced fishermen, some of them, and so they would have known when they were really in danger. And so aside from the fact that Jesus himself slept in the boat, which I've always just found fascinating that he could do that in such a storm, Right? It was bad enough that the boat could be overwhelmed. Those in the boat could drown in the raging waters. And so the disciples woke Jesus and, and with urgency updated him on the situation. And, and Jesus responds, of course, by calming the wind and the waves. And then he draws attention to their missing faith. And, and we're going we're to talk about faith directly at the end after we've gone through all four of these. But for right now, just notice that Jesus highlights their lack of faith. So, so we've got this first miracle story. Jesus' 12 disciples experienced the miracle. The power of Jesus that we see is exerted over nature. And then the disciples showed a lack of faith. So those are, those are the, the high points, the details to take from this first one. The next miracle story takes place upon the arrival at the other side of the lake. So they made it. Jesus calmed the storm. They continued on their journey. And we get to verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, he was, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming through the throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So it it, it seems like Luke is communicating to us that this particular demon possession is one which was which was pretty extreme in nature. The fact that this man was possessed by numerous demons. He lived naked outside of town. He could break chains and shackles which, which held him. That, that wouldn't have been common among demon-possessed people. So there, there's no denying the evil satanic power residing in this fellow. You just simply couldn't write it off as anything else. It wasn't just suspected. It was clearly on full display for all to see. But even though the power of Satan was, uh, was clear there, uh, it was still no match for God's power, was it? I mean, as soon as this man fell Jesus, he fell to the ground at his feet and, and begged him not to torment him. And, and, and it, it was the man's voice speaking, but the obvious assumption is that he's under the control of the demons at this point. And so those demons who possessed power, right? I mean, this, this man, superhuman strength, he could break chains and shackles. I mean, they, they, they possessed power, but they recognized a far greater power in Jesus himself. And so they knew that at the mere command of Jesus, that, that they would be cast into the abyss, which is the final destination for all evil forces, as, as we're told in the book of Revelation. So, so they, they knew, the, the demons knew the power of Jesus here. They recognized it. And I would argue that the people of that vicinity recognized the power of Jesus pretty clearly as well. That's why they came out. They saw the, the man, the formerly possessed man, sitting there clothed in his right mind. And they were scared. I mean, that's a crazy statement. This guy is calm, clothed, sitting at Jesus' feet, and everybody's scared. And why are they scared? Well, I mean, they recognize that whatever power used to reside in that guy, and they know it was power, they had seen it, a greater power had come and had exerted itself over the power seen in this man. And, and so that greater power instilled the fear in, in those from the towns. And they, they begged Jesus to leave. Isn't that crazy? They were so scared, they th- Jesus, get out of here. Go back on your side of the lake. This is frightening. And again, uh, you know, lastly in this story, let's again note the faith of, of the person experiencing Jesus' power. Or in this case, I, I think the complete rejection of faith by the man who was possessed by, by the demons. He not only lacked faith in Jesus, but, but he was actively opposed to Jesus. Uh, I think you could consider him Jesus' enemy at this point. And again, he was, he was under the, the, the power and the control of the demons, so he wasn't acting on his own volition. But we can't discount the fact that Luke is presenting the words coming from the man himself. And so it's clear that there is opposition to Jesus here. There's a rejection of faith that's going on within this individual. So they requested that Jesus uh, go back to the other side of the lake uh, and he did. He went back and it's maybe it's noteworthy that there was no storm this time when Jesus went the other way. Left the region that was the realm of Satan and went back to the Jewish side of the lake. You know, perhaps Satan only had a problem with him coming one way, not going back the other way. But upon his return back to Galilee, uh, we see two further miracles performed, and, and this time the two stories are intertwined with one another. So this is uh, picking it up in verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. I'm pause right there. Uh, so when 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 two stories are sandwiched together like like uh, this it's so important to notice the similarities and the differences of of the two stories because it's often that the stories are working together and are intended to make a point together that they wouldn't make separately. So what we see is that, that both the synagogue ruler and the sick woman had faith that Jesus could heal an illness. They both had faith. And if you know, if you know the ending of the story, Uh, of the 12-year-old girl, you know that Jesus eventually raised her from the dead, but at this point in the story, she's still alive. So it's two living people seeking healing from Jesus. Both stories begin that way. But while both individuals are seeking healing, the woman who is bleeding and, and the girl's father, they're two very different people. You have Jairus, who is a synagogue ruler, And you might say that his life revolved around the public worship of God that that would have taken place in the Jewish synagogue. His life revolved around that, 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 that's who he was. The woman is unnamed and had had a bleeding disease for the previous 12 years. And, And according to Old Testament purity laws, that would have meant that for the past 12 years, she was barred from public worship wouldn't have been allowed to participate. And because much of Jewish social life revolved around the synagogue and what took place there, she, she would have been effectively cut off from Jewish society because of, because of her illness. I mean, it's no wonder she had spent all that she had on doctors seeking a cure to her, to her issue. So, so we have a named man who's considered important in his community, and we have an unnamed woman considered unimportant outcast in her community. It's quite the contrast that we that we see in those two. Yet, they both had faith that Jesus could provide the healing that they were seeking. And so for the woman, uh, you know, she had faith that she only needed to touch Jesus' clothes, and and she would be healed. She had she had that faith, And, and so she did. And she was. She, she just touched the edge of Jesus' garment, and, and she was healed of her disease. Now, Now we can't, uh, we can't assume that Jesus wasn't in control of his own power at this point, right? I mean, if, if, if these four stories teach us anything, it's that Jesus is the one who possesses divine power, not simply that some kind of great power resides in his body and, you know, he's just at the mercy of that power. I mean. Jesus is the one who possesses and controls the, the divine power within him. It, I mean, if Jesus didn't want the woman to be healed, she wouldn't have been healed. She could have tackled Jesus in the street, not just touched the corner of his robe. She wasn't going to be healed. So, so it, it's not that Jesus got duped here by the woman. That's not at all what happened. So when, when he asks, who, who touched me, he's not trying to solve a mystery, it's not like he's, uh, what just happened? You know, that surprised me. He knows what's going on. He sought to, the reason he asked who touched me is he, he sought to both both commend the woman for her faith and exalt her before the crowd. Because remember, this, this woman had been outcast for 12 years, barred from public worship, barred from Jewish society. So, so you have an unnamed woman in that, in, in that context who, again, who had been barred from public worship of God, who got to look in his eyes and hear him say, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I mean, let's try to put ourselves in her shoes there, not being able to enter the worship of God in the synagogue for 12 years and to have God look at you and say, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I mean, she would not have received those words if Jesus didn't stop and call her out and bring her to himself. And I, I think she would not have experienced the emotional and the spiritual healing that surely came with those words if it wouldn't have happened if she just simply slipped back into the crowd after her physical healing. Man, what a, what a powerful picture is taking place there. But while all that was happening, there was still a young girl at death's doorstep. So look at verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, "'Your daughter's dead. "'Do not trouble the teacher anymore.' "'But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, "'Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well.' "'And when he came to the house, "'he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter, and James, and John, and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So, while everything was unfolding, with the bleeding woman who was healed, the young daughter of Jairus died. And and the message is sent to him, updates him on the situation. And we're not told directly how that impacted his faith, but the assumption is that his faith began to waver at that moment because the, the story starts with him coming to Jesus saying, hey, come come heal my daughter. She's, she's not well, she's dying. He's got faith that Jesus can do that. But then all of a sudden, Jesus has to speak to his faith and say, don't fear, only believe. And if you think about it, it's one thing to believe that Jesus can heal an illness. It feels different to believe that Jesus can raise the dead right? I mean, isn't, isn't, doesn't it feel like there's a, a distinction there? I mean, obviously, Jesus has the power to do both. It's not like one is easier or tougher for him, but I think to us, it feels like a distinction, and so, and, and again, we know Jesus can raise the dead. We already, Luke told us about an instance last week that we looked at in the sermon where, where he had done just that very thing, but based upon Jesus' response to Jairus here, his faith must have wavered, because Jesus says, don't fear, but but believe. And so then, you know, as we saw, he, Jesus continued on to the house. He got mocked by the crowd who was there and said, well, she's dead, Jesus. We know what we're talking about. And, uh, and then Jesus, of course, goes and restores life to her body. Her spirit returns. She sits up and eats. Now, now the girl was obviously the one on the receiving end of the miracle, she was the one brought back to life. But it's her father, upon whom Luke focuses. It's Jairus who comes to Jesus, at the beginning. It's Jairus who Jesus speaks to, and then, and then at the end, it's it's he and his wife both who were amazed. And, and so, so when we when we focus in on Jairus, right, his initial faith in Jesus was put to the test when the situation changed when he went from having a sick daughter to having a dead daughter. And, and while his faith wavered at that point, it seems, it surely would have been restored and even strengthened as he got to see firsthand, up close, Jesus bring his daughter back to life. So that's the four stories. If we take a step back, as I said, four individuals or four groups involved, four displays of Jesus' power, four different examples, different levels of faith. And, and, and I think when we step back and, and, and look at all that together, there's, for me, there's two main things that jump out at me. Um, the first thing is that no one, no, no situation is beyond the reach of God's power. There just isn't. Uh, I mean, the people involved in the miracles were various and sundry. You had 12 disciples, 12 Jewish disciples. You had a Gentile demon-possessed man on the other side of the lake. You had a well-respected religious leader. You had a looked down upon chronically ill woman. I mean, that, that's a various and sundry group, <laughs> if you could put one together. And the, the uh, situations that they were in, the issues that they faced, were as various and sundry as they themselves were. You had a raging storm, you had demon possession, you had a, a sick and then a dead child, and you had a long-term illness. And when you think about it, in, in that context, what Jesus did, who he interacted with, really would have stood out in a in a highly structured class system like would have existed then Only certain people possessed certain rights and privileges and So Jesus actions would have stood out because he interacted with and and he pursued Both those who were heralded by society and those who were cast off from society both groups of people it didn't matter no no one was too far beneath Jesus for him to work in their lives, and and no one was too far above Jesus for him to work in their lives. So that would have stood out, and then when you think about the the polytheistic Roman culture that existed, where where there was this pantheon of gods, and they all supposedly possessed power in their own particular areas, here Jesus is doing it all, right? Didn't matter. I mean, his power was not limited to a certain force of nature wasn't limited to a certain geographic location, like was often thought at that time. I mean, he did it on both sides of the lake. I mean, it it would have stood out there. And when we think about ourselves, you know, odds are you and I don't match up perfectly with the people in the stories or the situations that they faced. Uh, If we added our own story to the mix here, it would be even more various and sundry. But it doesn't change anything. I mean, that, that doesn't change anything. We and our situations matter to God, just like we saw in all four examples here. Uh, our culture may tell us that we're not important. Someone may tell us that our situation's not worth God's time and attention, but it's a lie. I mean, there's, it's just a straight up lie. It is each and every one of us matters to God. And I know that sounds like a cliche. I know that, but (laughs) it's the truth. I mean, we look at these stories together and, and it is the clear truth. And so nothing about us, nothing about our story ought to keep us from God. When Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and burdened, He means it. He shows it here. Come to me all who are weary and burdened, and so the the question we can ask ourselves is, is there anything keeping me from coming to Jesus? Is there something about me, or is there something about my situation that is, that is, that I've erected in front of me so that it's keeping me from Jesus? I mean, has someone or something convinced us that that Jesus just man it, going to Jesus is probably a waste of time? He's because of who you are, because of what you're going through. That is, I mean, if, if if that's if that's present in our lives, then consider the truth of these four stories, powerful truth that Jesus calls every one of us to to come to Him to unburden ourselves. His power can show itself in anyone's life, in any situation, it doesn't matter. As various and sundry as it could be, Jesus calls us to himself. I think that's a powerful truth that we see when looking at these four stories. And the other thing that that, uh, jumps out at me is uh, does so when focusing on the faith displayed by each person or, or group of people. Because again, just as the the people and their situations were various and sundry, the faith seen in each situation is various and sundry also. You have 12 disciples who lacked faith. Jesus called them out on it. There was the demon-possessed man, very opposed to faith. You had a bleeding woman who possessed faith. And you had a synagogue ruler who, who had wavering faith through his experience. And yet, while their individual faiths differed, their overall experience was the same, wasn't it? They saw Jesus miraculously work in their life, every one of them. All four stories, Jesus miraculously worked. And I think, I think in many ways that, that this is a continuation of what, what we were discussing last week, when we were talking about John the Baptist and he was wondering why he was still sitting in, in, in jail when Jesus was out performing miracles for all these other people. We talked about how, how God's uh, understanding is so far above our own. and We were talking about how we don't control God either. And, and it's, it's not as if when we say we don't control God that there's some asterisk there when, well, if we get to a level of faith— then we can control God. If we just have a certain amount of faith, then we can get him to do exactly what it is that we want him to do. There's not an asterisk there. The complex truth is that the Gospels contain four different kinds of stories regarding regarding Jesus' miracles and faith. So there's stories where miracles are performed for people who had faith. There are stories where miracles are performed for people who didn't have faith. There are stories where miracles are not performed for people who had faith. And you probably guessed the last one. There's stories where miracles were not performed for people who didn't have faith. All four, all four of those kinds of stories exist in the gospels, and we've seen them all so far in Luke. We're a third of the way through Luke's gospel. We've already seen every one of those Two of them we saw today, miracles for those who did and didn't have faith. Last week, we saw faithful John in jail not get the miracle that he was wanting. And and a few weeks back, we uh, we saw Jesus withholding miracles from his hometown when the people didn't believe. So we've seen them all so far in Luke. And I, I'm not, I'm not going to stand here this morning and say, I've got it all figured out. I, I, I'm not going to give you a formula that that will guarantee God's miraculous work in a specific area. I, if you're looking for that from me this morning, I, I'm sorry. I can't deliver that for you. I just can't. Um, what I can try to do is, is release you from from having to carry around upon your shoulders the whole weight of whether or not God performs a miracle. Because I think we take that on ourselves sometimes. Say, man, if God's gonna do a miracle here, it depends on me, It depends on my faith, it depends on how I respond. But I mean, as we've seen it, that's just not the case. I mean, God performing a miracle as you or I desire does not mean that our faith is above everyone else's or is above a certain level. And God not performing a miracle as you or I desire does not mean that our faith is lacking. It simply means that, that according to God's love and, and infinite wisdom and eternal purposes, that He chose to work in a certain way in your life or in my life. I mean that that's really what it means. And that, that can be hard. <laughs> me to understand. It could be hard for me to accept, um, but he, he is God, and I am not. That much I am quite clear on, and, and so the, the faith that, that I strive to have is a, is a faith where I know that God can perform whatever miracle I desire deep in my soul, a faith that knows that God can do that, but at the same time, a faith that says I, I can trust God in whatever way He chooses to work in my life—I think that's what that's what I strive for. And I know that's a whole lot easier to stand here and say in a pulpit as opposed to living it out in whatever situation we have faced or are currently facing. I know that, but it is a faith worth pursuing. It is worth pursuing. It's a faith that I'm confident God will grant us as we pursue Him in our lives. And I think it's the faith that, that is uh, referenced, like in John, uh, or excuse me, in James 5:15, where it says that the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. I, I think when praying with the type of faith that I just described, a person can be well because of their deep trust in God, no matter the immediate physical outcome. Because there's times where God does choose to physically physically work in a miraculous way. And there's other times where that work is not in the way that we're desiring deep in ourselves. And so to have the faith that says, God, I know you can and I trust that you can, but I trust you regardless, however you choose to work. And there's just not a special formula or, or procedure that's going to guarantee that God works according to our expectations or according to our desires. And, and I think when we take that in, there's a weight that comes off, a weight that we're just not meant to carry. We're just not. And again, it doesn't mean we don't come to God and and, and cry out before him and, and, and bear our souls to him. We do, but we don't have to carry that burden of, and it usually shows itself, and man, it didn't happen, so I must not believe enough. My faith must not, must not be there. That's a weight we're, we're not supposed to have. What God does promise is that in his power, And in his goodness and in his love, he is at work in our lives. Whether we see it or not, whether it's the way we want it to be or not, that he is at work in our lives, and we can rest in that. And we can trust in that, have that kind of faith. Let's stand together and come before God and um, let's ask him for that kind of faith. I think he wants to build that within us, and I think he will as we pursue him in that way. Father, I I thank you for these four stories, four incredible pictures of your power, of your love. And yet, God, putting them all together, it it paints a picture for us that, that I think is so important. I give you praise that we can come to you no matter what. That you love us no matter who we are. That you are able to work in our lives no matter what the situation is. And I pray that we would, in response to that, come to you. Come to you with our, with our burdens and lay them at your feet. And God, in, in the midst of that then... Be able to sit at your feet and trust in what you will do, in whatever way you will do it. And again, God, in a in a vacuum, in a in a sermon, that's so easy to say, but give us the give us the trust, give us the strength to have that kind of faith as we go out these doors to have a certainty to know that you have the power to do anything and the trust to be all right with however you choose to work, that we can worship you regardless, that we can rest in you regardless. God, build that faith in us. Lead us in that. And I give you praise ahead of time for the deepening relationship with you that I know that that will build. And so, God, we praise you for who you are, for how you work, even though we don't always understand or comprehend it. We worship you anyway, knowing and trusting that you are holy and that you are good and that you are loving. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.